Hello and welcome back to A Pint With Peter where me and my friend Russell sit down with his dad and have a bit of a chat and try to bridge the intergenerational gap. I think that's what Russell says. It's Chris again this week doing the intro and I'll be back at the end doing the outro. Russell is trusting me because he said I did such a good job last time. Last week we were talking about Stacia and the power of femininity. We're continuing on with the same subject. I'll see you at the end. I mean, one writer, one, if you want, philosopher, one guru who often, often, often crops up. Uh, I've mentioned the guy's name before. He's called Urquhart Tuller. Do you remember me talking about Urquhart Tuller? Yes. And Urquhart Tuller um, his most well-known work is called The Power of Now. You know, you know, a central tenet of, of uh, mental good health, and it's very, very hard to do, is to actually be in the now. Yeah. So I know my friend Gordon, he'd get me, he'd say, tap the table, be here now, be here now. Don't go drifting off in your thoughts, which for me is probably quite good advice, isn't it? But um, Urquhart Toller, and I'm nailing my colours to the mast here. This is um, a little passage from, it's called A New Earth. I think it's a wonderful book. I think it's better than The Power of Now. He's talking what, what he calls the suppression of the feminine principle. Women are less mind-identified than men. You know, there's men... I'm, I'm one of them. You can get tangled up in, in your thoughts, can't you? They're more in touch with their inner body and the intelligence of the organism where the intuitive faculties originate. And I think, generally speaking, women are much more intuitive. The female form is less, less rigidly encapsulated than the male. It has greater openness and sensitivity towards other life forms. And this is your Isadora Duncan, Stacia in being full of veracity they're more attuned to the natural world does that ring true for you can you can you get into that i mean i mean i i, I i'm not trying to um curry favor here with the opposite sex but in some ways i think women girls are vastly superior to blokes i, I really do believe that if the, if the world was run by oh. women girls it'd be a fucking better place oh, I, totally do you agree with that? Totally. Yeah. But what, what really, I, 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 I'm taking this a la Eckhart a little bit further. He, he goes on to talk about the sacred feminine. And this is where it gets interesting, where it goes right back to Greek-Roman times, doesn't it, with the goddesses and so on and so forth. The sacred feminine is, is suppressed and it's felt by many women as emotional pain. In fact, it's become part of their pain body, together with the accumulated pain suffered by women over millennia through childbirth, rape, slavery, torture, and violent death. The ego, which is what guys are about, really, isn't it? The ego was never as deeply rooted in women, and it's losing its hold on women more quickly than on we on men. Um, I, I mean, I'm sorry to get a bit heavy here, guys. But <laughs> I think these are really interesting thoughts. Do you? Yes. I mean, I mean, both of you guys. I mean, you're like me. You're not. You're not a kind of alpha male. 
blah blah. I mean, I, I could I could have had this conversation with probably I don't know six or seven out of ten guys. Depends on the generation. And they'd probably sit there and say, "What the fucking hell are you going on about, man?" You know what I mean? I'd be looking at Stacia and thinking, "Well, whatever you want, you know, I could give her one, pal, and all that stuff." But in later years. I think it began when you were kids. You had this getting in touch with your feminine side, that that's what it's about, isn't it? Am I making sense yeah. here? Yeah. I mean, would your father have this conversation, for example? No. <laughs> but, but he's not a... He's not an alpha male. He's not a macho man or no, anything, but he, but he would find this... I don't know. Never really... Yeah. You have to conversations like this. You have to go round at the weekend... Good come on, Father. Let's sit down. Yeah. Let's talk about Stacey. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 um, I think if you had a couple of feminists sitting here, third wave feminists, they'd say, oh, you're not going down that route of either seeing a woman as either goddess or whore. You know, that's a common trope, isn't it? But well, I, I was going to say, Charlotte, my sister, has said to me before that the whole trope of a stripper... Is empowering women, blah blah blah. That's interesting. It's like yeah, a male yeah. thing invented, yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, you could even go further and um, talk about prostitution and and even porn. I mean, you get female porn directors and so on. I, I think it's a really interesting subject. But I, I I do believe women can be empowered and validated. When I saw Stacia, she was validating who she was, and she was in dead earnest you know um i mean i think sometimes it comes down to an age thing as well because mum will have different views but it's because she grew up in an age where say women were a bit more oppressed yeah sure so getting your breasts out was probably quite liberating yeah whereas like now it's skew with a bit more the only other this isn't a, a nudie thing by the way the only other time in a public place i've ever you're probably going to think i'm nuts here I, I went to um, a concert to see Alison Moyer. Do you know, even know who Alison Moyer is? I recognise the yeah, name. Yeah, I went to um, a place called Eric's in, uh, in Liverpool. Eric's actually, I think I'm right in saying, was actually run by, or set up by Roger Eagle, the guy who, who set up the Magic Village. And um, pretty pretty big place, you know. I don't think you'd be talking thousands. But Alison Moyer... Um, at the time, she was with the guy who uh, I think he came from Depeche Mode. I think it's called Vince Clark. Uh, next time you're here, or you can listen on Spotify. They had a they had a really good act, and they were called Yazoo. Have you ever heard of them? It does sound familiar. Yeah. And uh, not, not she. And she was singing um, "Only You." I think the song was something like that. And I'm not making this up. I know I'm vain and egotistical. But when she was singing this song, I'm, I'm quite tall. I mean, I don't stand out in a crowd tall. Six, I'm not six foot five or six foot six or whatever. But she was singing that song to me. Kid you not. She was looking at me and singing it. And, uh, and I just wondered. Um, I'll have to ask Andy on, on Sunday. Sometimes... If you want to, if you're a singer, if you want the song to have maximum impact, is it a kind of um, a technique where you pick somebody in the audience and kind of serenade them? 
you ever seen this? I mean, I've seen it with, um, say, Bruce Springsteen, something like that. You know, they pick somebody in the audience and then they come on stage, of course, and all that kind of business. I know when I saw a band called Set Your Goals once, because they're like my favourite band, I was proper going for it. But, you know, I kind of felt like at one point he was looking at me. That's interesting. Yeah. Like he's, well, yeah. well, um, I thought, oh, is he looking at me? Because I'm just belting the songs right back at him. Wow, and, wow, wow. Well, you wow, never know. Wow. He, he could have just been looking at the person next to me. Or... Yeah. You've never had anything like that yourself, Chris? No, so. I can't say. I, I think in um, stand-up I have. <laughs> where it's like they're talking to you yeah but you've got to be careful <laughs> yeah, haven't you because you um, I'm always try, scared it's like, it's like do you break the eye contact yeah. or do you keep it what's the, what's the power move on that yeah. one I've, I've seen, on the comedian yeah, I've seen a few stand-ups and one thing you don't do is come in late no. do you oh wow <laughs> Tell you what I saw as a stand-up as that guy with the the Australian guy plays the Australian consulate and all that business. It's probably about ninety years old now. Oh, you know, um, with the daffodils and, and I'm not talking Morrissey here. He was he was really really good and uh, a couple of people came in late for that. Bloody hell, they were slated. It was, <laughs> it was unbelievable. Anyway, let, let, going back to um, the hippie kind of thing i mean some some people maybe listening to this would think it was quite a degenerate kind of age um but i think if you look at what i call oppositional countercultures over time they do actually trigger cultural change don't they and then they fade away you see if you look at if you look at the hippie thing if you go back in time you could go right back to romanticism you know Keats, Shelley, all that kind of stuff. Do you remember studying those at school for romantic, yeah. romantic uh, poets? No. You don't, right? Well, no. what, what's interesting, and I started off saying, I wander lonely as a clod. I mean, that's from Wordsworth, Wordsworth. isn't it? Daffodils, yeah. I wander lonely as a cloud, blah, blah. But, um, Bring it all back to daffodils again. Oh, right. It's almost yeah. like you had it all planned. <laughs> yeah, I, ne- I never saw the Smiths, funnily enough. I'd love to have seen them. It was very hard to get tickets for them. A pity that. Then you had Bohemianism that came a bit later. Then you had the Jazz Age of the Roaring Twenties. Then you had the kind of nonconformists of the 1930s. You know, that's Alistair Crowley, blah, blah, that kind of set. By the way, Genesis P. Orridge, he was, uh, what do you call it, um, uh, an acolyte of Alistair Crowley, by the way, just to give you an idea what he was into. Yeah, remember me talking to you about yeah. that. I think that's probably why it came a bit, it came a bit of a cropper. Then you had the Beat Generation. Did you study any Beat Generation stuff on on the road? You know, Jack Kerouac and that kind of stuff. Nope. I mean, what what gets me is how much of what we are originates in the states. Mm. I mean, in the generation before me, you know, Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg and people like that. Uh, they they formed the kind of nucleus of the of the counter culture then you had um you know what i was part of which i suppose is is the hippie subculture going back to what i said right at the beginning of this chat i think the hippie subculture was one of the first mass movements i think that that was the big difference but um my my theory is all subcultures eventually fumble and fail and they're replaced by something else i mean the hippie subculture was you know briefly supplanted by the punk subculture and coming full circle, I mean, what followed punk in the 80s? I mean, there were some great bands. Where, of course, the New Romantics. 
Yeah. New romanticism, which you know brings you full circle. I mean, we, we just can't help ourselves, can we? And uh, I think, I think, I think what happens. Uh, you know, I'm not a Marxist or anything. I think the money men start mm. jumping oh, in, yeah. and people start getting clever, don't they? Do you know what I'm? Do you know what I'm saying here? It's uh, here is a, a wonderful uh, opportunity. Like, how can we make some money from it? There's nothing intrinsically wrong with that, but um. One of my favourite um, commentators on the period, and if you're interested, I recommend you read his stuff, was Richard Neville. You remember Richard Neville? Yeah. He's the guy who wrote The Serpent, which was, um, you know, co-wrote The Serpent. I mean, one of my favourite books of his, I've had out for you before, it's the one again with bearded guys surrounded by five bare-breasted chicks. You know that one? Yeah. yeah remember yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, in what, what he tried to do, the book's called Hippie Hippie Shake, he, he was... Uh, sitting there thinking what the true meaning of a revolution was going to be and he, he, he called these people who kind of interrupted the gangsters of the new freedoms and they quickly moved in they mopped up the kids with drugs and a drivel filled pretense of fake revolt I mean do you, do you think I also think it's a natural process of being young. I mean, do you think when you were in into Slipknot and stuff like that, it was, and you and you kind of semi-conscious of it. It's kind of a fake revolt. You know, you had, you kind yeah. of had a feeling that you had to do something, possibly to piss your parents yeah. off. Yeah, it. it's something like the complete opposite and shocking, really, isn't it? Yeah. You, I mean, do you still listen to bands like Slipknot, for example? Not really um, slept that, but I'm still very much pop punk. Pop punk. Okay. Because, I mean, for me, and my, my tastes are very uh, eclectic, very broad. I mean, Genesis, P, Orange, Throbbing Gristle, that kind of stuff. To me, it's unlistenable. Even some of the early Captain Beefheart stuff, you know, is unlistenable. D did you, or, or do you find now that some of the Slipknot stuff, the more excessive stuff, is unlistenable? Because it's basically just noise, isn't it? It's noise. Or am I, I wrong? I'm I, doing... I was never that yeah. much into Slipknot, so I can't. I would say they are quite listenable. There are some metal bands that, for similar reasons, I wouldn't touch. All oh, right. Probably a subgenre. I think it was called pig pig metal. Oh, yeah, pig wow. Metal. Where like the singer would essentially just scream. Yeah, make grunts down. Like he was singing, but it was essentially just grunts down a microphone. And wow. I could ne I could never get behind that. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's kind of deconstructing music, isn't it? But I think the average punter. I mean, I, I, I think I, I don't exclude myself. I think the average pop music fan has fairly simple tastes, don't they? In the end, you just want to be entertained a bit, don't yeah. you? Yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? Um, um, I mean, the, the thing is. Why I've made these uh, allusions to Throbbing Gristle and to Hawkwind and so on, um, I think that Revolt actually ends up being, it siphons itself off into degeneracy. I mean, I think, I think, uh, I think a lot of people um, would have looked, not particularly at me per se, they would have seen you as being degenerate. You know what I mean? Degenerate. Um, 
And in some ways, particularly when you hear about the London scene, you know, the big city scene or the, or the group scene back then, it was, it was degenerate. Um, and the whole, it's hard for you guys to understand because the rock world was quite small where you could see bands in little clubs and so on and so forth. And suddenly, as you know from you know, previous podcasts, it kind of exploded. And uh, part of um, being young when I was young was you you kind of decried consumerist capitalist value uh, values you know i remember um one of my friends for example started quite entrepreneurial he started up a market school a market store you know what i mean to make some extra cash on the side and uh, not me personally but some people would have said oh he's a breadhead man do you know what i mean he's just into making money and, so, uh, and somehow it's a bit dirty do you know what i mean is that feeling completely divorced from your generation, or do, uh, do you have different limits? I think it's different limits. Yeah. I, yeah. I think I don't think just making money is per se per se is mm. necessarily a bad thing. It depends on how much money you have to begin with and what you're doing to get it. Oh, that's yeah. a good way of putting it. Yeah, yeah. You see, I, I went for a walk over the fields earlier, and I was thinking. Um, I don't know who said it. I don't think it was Marx, but, uh, you know, behind every fortune is a crime. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I think uh, when you're driven by thinking like that, it's, uh, it, it, it sours it somewhat. Um, I mean, what, what happened was you, you had bands, you know, like the Pink Fairies, like Hawkwind and so on. They'd often do free gigs, yeah. Um, and they decried consumerist values, but what what happened eventually? But you know the whole music scene actually began to worship such values. You know what I'm saying? They quickly developed an all-consuming hunger for wealth and worldly success. Do you know what I mean? So it it turned from being an alternative society into a kind of really lurid manifestation and. Uh, you know, the worst offenders were bands like the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin and so on and so forth. I mean, uh, Rolling Stones, for example, became tax exiles, you know. Um, and what, what you know, one thing that Neville said that really struck home with me was um, in any movement, it, I think I've, I've read quite a lot about the punk and the new romantic, at its core are a very small number of people. And the majority are fellow travellers. And back back in my day, you had what were called fake hippies. You know, they, these would be people who'd be a kind of hippie at the weekend. Um, and you had the absurd... This is I'm talking London here. I'm talking about Neville commenting on London. You had the absurd spectacle of rich, middle-class English people playing the game for a couple of years, then going home to mummy and daddy. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? It's uh, it's it's fascinating. So, but you know, by the early seventies, that kind of cynicism uh, prevailed. Your energy was a bit sapped. You were a bit demoralised. And uh, as you know, have you ever looked into Manson and Altamont and stuff like that? You know, you had these really kind of dark historical events uh, emerging from the states. Um, you even remember I I spoke to you quite a lot about LSD and about uh, Timothy Leary. I think what did it for me, I, I saw Leary, uh, this is quite contemporary comment, but Le Leary, who was all peace and love, suddenly proclaimed 
to kill a policeman is a sacred act. Um, Jesus Christ. You know, it's a sudden, I don't know, posturing, posing, a controversy for its own sake. But what interests me about that Genesis P. Orridge stuff, um, if you read the Neville book and similar accounts, say in Oz magazines and so on and so forth, um, you were continually pushing the idea of freedom you know, political freedom, but in particular sexual freedom. And um, he, this is Neville, he was involved in something called Suck. And uh, you had back in those days um, actual sex festivals, do you know what I mean? I never went to anything <laughs> like this. So but, he um, says. Yeah, you even you even had stuff like uh, seriously, you know, stuff like bestiality being considered as kind of legitimate. <laughs> um, I was going to say um, a couple of podcasts ago, I went down to the Whitworth um, to see an art exhibition. There's this wonderful exhibit. I can just find it for you. Do you remember me telling you about the shed? I actually found it on my phone here. So it was a shed. And on the shed, it had all these uh, comments made by this woman who was around in San Francisco during the... Uh, Late 60s, early 70s. There it is. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's like a greenhouse. That's quite pretty. It's still still in place. And it's called... um, The lady's name is Mary Kelly. uh, And it's called Love Songs, multi-storey house, wooden frame, acrylic panels. But when I went... You can walk walk inside it. um, And on one of the the panels, it said... she, She worked for an underground magazine like Rolling Stone, as it would have been there. And then this, this is a comment she made. I wanted more than being asked to operate the memograph and fuck any man on request. Do you remember me telling you that? You know, and that's where, you know, if you want, the revolution went a bit wrong. And I think it went wrong also for the artists. You know, 20 podcasts ago, I was talking to you about Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin yeah. and blah, blah. And that poor guy from Canned Heat, you know, the yeah. very sensitive one, who just went off one night and got in his sleeping bag and took 50 sleeping pills. I mean, I, I, I think reading the memoirs of these people, a lot of them, not all, they just wanted to play their music and entertain people. But it became so big. And this is a quote from Simon Napier Bell. You know, the guy I told you about who managed the Yardbirds. I think he managed George, uh, what's he called, George Michael later on. He went right through a few decades. This is a comment from a guy from a band called Mott the Hoople. You end up in a terrible state of alienation from your audience. And you begin to think that the people who like you are fucking idiots. And the people who hate you are complete arseholes. But when I'm on stage, it's all there is for me. It's my whole world. But then afterwards, there's no audience. You feel a really deep emptiness. It's all consuming. So the answer, you've guessed it, is drug taking. Yeah. Rock had become big business. The free concerts I went to were stopped because they realised you weren't Mm. making money from them. The underground had become mainstream. And what had become fun had now become work. And the accent changed from expanding minds to expanding bank balances. The early, this is Simon Napier Bell himself. The early 70s were like the Roman Empire. Confident, brash, descending into total degeneracy, exchanging talent for dollars and decadence. 
The freshness had gone, its participants decayed, death and destruction were everywhere. The age of rock was coming to an end. Yeah? Hmm. And I, I was a wonderful, um, again, commentator and writer on rock called David uh, Hepworth, who's a... Uh, I think he maybe even fronted the old grey whistle test at one point. And uh, he, he, he's got a theory that movements max last 40 years. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. From, so from their infancy, to it's like a star dying from their infancy to their total collapse. Even though at the end of it, not many people are even on board. He's talking 40 years. So his, his theory, which is a really interesting one, is that uh, rock, uh, as maybe you and I know, it began, say, mid-60s and effectively ended 40-odd years later when rock star... I mean, your rock star now is a very different creature, isn't it, to your Bowies and, and your, uh, your Mark Bolands, blah, blah. I, I think so. I mean, I mean, during my era, and I think I think this is where musicians felt wrong-footed. During my era, because I was a massive fan of bands like Echo and the Bunnymen. Have you heard of them? I've got six albums of theirs up in the attic. Um, as, as a rock star, this is where it, I think sociologically where it gets really, really interesting. As a rock star. Your music, in some ways, was secondary or even tertiary. You, you were suddenly expected to have an opinion on everything. You know what I mean? I don't know if you ever heard rock stars being interviewed, but most of them basically have fuck all to say, do they? Yeah. It's just a kind of a, a monotonous uh, ribbon of, of nothingness, isn't it? But do you understand what I'm saying? How people... I mean, you and I do it. How you latch on to what somebody says. And... The feelings and thoughts you're having are shared often by tens of thousands of people and they mean far more to you than what you hear in school or what you hear from the government or whatever. I mean, I think that's a really interesting phenomenon, don't you? Oh, yeah, very much so. Really do. I mean, you see, for my era, and what I've tried to do over, over several podcasts is to explain to you that... Um, you know, there was no internet, there was no mobile phone. And you also, because you guys have been tuning into it tonight, there was no dictionary of disapproval. You know, there's no kind of um, lexicon of, of disapproval. So back in my day, if you were basically a rotten drug addict, you know, you'd be described as having abuse issues or something like that. But nobody really got, got a handle on it. I mean, I, I find it quite amazing that whoever you care to mention, who was in, in, a, in a successful band during that era, I find it quite amazing that they haven't gone to prison, to be quite frank, when you read the accounts. Of, I mean, it's all catching up, up, up with them now. Well, yeah, I mean, Gary, <laughs> old Gary came out of prison earlier this week, apparently, yeah, but, um, but, but that really interests me, um, how um, music, even now, can become your identity, can't it? It really can become your identity. I mean, I, I remember, um, I was going to talk to you tonight principally about glam rock. Um, I remember a couple of guys, and I didn't think they were pricks or pillocks or whatever. You go around the house, not the whole house, but maybe the basement or whatever. It would be full of bloody posters of uh, Mark Bolan and Bowie and so on. It's almost like a contagion. I mean, did, did you have that during your lifetime? 
I mean, did you have big stars who kind of grasped the attention of a lot of people? I, I just want to say it was more of a teenage girl thing. Yeah. With that, with them, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, if my if my sister was here, I mean, she'd be uh, she'd be embarrassed to um, she'd deny it. But she was a big Bay City Rollers fan. <laughs> yeah, have you even heard of the Bay City yeah, Rollers? Do, do, do you know Do you know who they are? Um, yeah, because I feel like Dean Chris would probably have band posters, like album covers, but then all the girls I knew they would gravitate towards the band members yeah. like who well say for us growing up in the 90s all like the boy bands oh, okay or say even Spice even charlotte yeah or even say charlotte she'd have cutouts of the band members of say she's gonna come after oh there we go like travis barker from blink 182 that's oh wow wow because wow. she'll fight say find him attractive and venerate him huh Whereas, well, that's that's a good term, isn't it? Venerate. Yeah, yeah. once she will come after you, but I kind of wanted to say the guy from Fallout Boy, Pete Pete Wentz, is it? Yeah. But I don't know if that's me just remembering yeah. things wrong. So <laughs> getting an angry text. I didn't like him. And that that clearly is also a sexual thing, isn't it? Do you think? Well, we're not we're not women, are we? But um, yeah. It's it's like I don't know, like teenage boys have been. Yeah. Well, that's a really interesting era because you you kind of missed that, didn't you? That kind of you had a return, very much a return to sexism, didn't you? That during that era with those uh, those lads mags with the it was all kind of breasts and football and and of course music, of course, wasn't it? And uh, yeah, you missed that though, didn't you? I I think we were uh, we didn't. It was nothing to do. It wasn't aimed at us. I say because I I always remember one called Front. Remember Front? Rings a bell, yeah. That was kind of like the old kid one. All the the girls would have tattoos and they'd interview like rock bands. So it was less football but more. So imagine Krang Mag but with boobies. Where there's those interviews basically crass, where they pretty pretty tedious. I mean you weren't at the level of What's your favourite colour or what's your star sign? You were, you were a bit elevated from yeah, that, yeah, but yeah. even so, it was fairly... It would be like, you know, what's your craziest gig moment wow, kind of thing? Wow, wow, You see, another variant of that applying to men is about the equipment, isn't it? Your whole magazines are devoted to that, aren't they? There's types of strings you're using and oh, so on yeah. and so forth. I mean, anyway, I was, go- I was going to finish tonight with... Um, I was going to say to you, um, you would um, watch um, something called Play for Today, which was quite risque television. I was going to end tonight with talking to you about the uh, Play for Today that was called The Year of the Sex Olympics. (laughs) So so next time on on, uh, Satin to Statins, um, Russell probably doesn't know what statins are, does he? That's why he's... uh, I know statins. Statins, yeah. I've just described them. Yeah. Oh, well, that God's Christmas. We're going to end the podcast here. So so next week it'll be the year of the Sex Olympics and uh, I'm going to come on to eventually about the antidote to to, to prog rock which was was glam rock I'm going to hold him to the sex olympics I was promised glam rock tonight didn't get it yeah 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 if Peter doesn't deliver what's that management term over deliver (laughs) yeah
Is it over promise, under deliver? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's my mantra, isn't it? I have to have a big post here. Over promise, under deliver. Will Russell ever get to hear about glam rock? Or will he ever get to hear about the Sex Olympics that he's been promised as well for the next time? Who knows? Let's find out. Of course, you can always get in touch with us at the podcast. You can find us on Twitter at a pint with Peter, or you can send us an old-fashioned email. The address of that is pintwithpeter at gmail.com. Well, as I look out the window right now, it's very snowy, so make sure you're wrapped up warm, and on to the next one. <laughs>